0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to begin Luke chapter 9 here. It's going to consist of two stories. The first story is the beginning of the third tour of Galilee, after Jesus instructs the twelve, and he sends them out two by two. In the last chapter, at the end of Luke 8, in verses 40 through 56, we have Jesus healing the synagogue ruler Jairus' daughter. And healing the woman with the issue of blood. So that tells us where we are now. Now, in Luke 9, verses 1 through 6, we find that that story, the sending out of the 12 on the third tour of Galilee, sending them out two by two, that is directly paralleled in Mark 6, verse 6 through 13. And there's also some parallel material also, a lot of extra material in Mark, Matthew nine thirty-five to 11, 1. That section in Matthew nine thirty five to eleven one is too long for me to splice in here. But since the Mark version is about the same length as Luke and parallels it very well, I'm going to take my discussion of Mark chapter six, verses six through thirteen and splice it in here. And then I am going to tackle the next three verses of Luke chapter nine, verses seven, eight, and nine, which tells the story of Herod the Tetrarch and how he put John the Baptist in jail. That is more thoroughly discussed in Mark and Matthew. I'm sorry, I'm going to splice one of those two discussions at the end of this audio for Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. So the first audio that I'm going to splice, Mark 6, 1 through 6, begins now. Now we're still in verse 6, the last part of the verse. Now he was going around the villages in a circuit teaching. Now this is what Robertson calls the beginning of the third tour of Galilee after instructing the twelve and sending them forth by twos. So here we're going to have the Jesus' third tour, but he's going to separate out. He's going to split off from the apostles. He's going to send them out by themselves. So we go to verse 7, and and let me tell you here that there's a parallel. The parallel is in Matthew 9, starting with verse 35, and going all the way over into chapter 11 in Matthew. So I'm not going to go over all of Matthew again. That would just be basically reteaching Matthew. I've already done that. In an audio on Matthew Matthew chapters uh, 10 uh, Nine, ten, and eleven. So what I'm going to do is go through Mark and just pick out what Mark says about this commissioning of the twelve, and we'll just uh, give sort of a skinny version of this commissioning of the twelve apostles. Here's some of the details that Mark leaves out. He leaves out a lot, according to John Gill. He gives no names of the twelve apostles. He gives no notices of the places that they go to or not that they should go to or not go to. He says, nothing of the subject matter of the ministry. There is no healing of the sick, raising of the dead, casting out of the devils of devils. You can see all that in Matthew, mostly in chapter 10, with a little bit at the end of 9 and beginning of 11. Now, why were the 12 set out in pairs? Perhaps to bolster their credibility. Here's what the NIVA Study Bible says, and John Gill also, that going out in pairs would establish the miracles and teaching of of the disciples by the testimony of more than one witness. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And also, as Gil Clark and the NIV Study Bible say, also it would it would mean that the apostles would have mutual support during their training period. And application time, if you're going out and do ministry, it's always better to do two or three rather than one. I know sometimes people go out by ones. It, happens, it happened in the New Testament every now and then, but it didn't happen often. And uh, it's better to have somebody else around. Now, notice here that Jesus gave the apostles authority over unclean spirits. He doesn't say anything about healing in Matthew. He says he gave them authority over unclean spirits to drive them out and to heal every disease and sickness. So there was healing as well as exorcism. I don't think it makes that big, it means that much to distinguish between healing and exorcism because oftentimes exorcism was the method by which people were healed. The other interesting question about this is. Since Jesus gave those 12 to send people out to heal and to drive out unclean spirits, does that also apply to ordinary disciples today? Or are the cessationists right and ordinary disciples today can't do anything but read the Bible and teach the Bible? Well, too many people have done miracles. People I know, I myself, people I know have driven out demons. Don't tell me that not ordinary Christians can't do that. These 12 were anointed by Jesus. This was before Pentecost, and you're telling me that after Pentecost, when all those people received the filling of the Holy Spirit, they didn't go out and do miracles and cast out demons? Sure they did. Cessationism should cease. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible in Mark 6, verse 7, has 12 capitalized. He summoned the 12. Why is it capitalized, and why is it called the 12? Well, because these were special a special twelve, and Jesus is trying to fit in with the typology and symbolism of the Old Testament. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. The number twelve is either an allusion to the twelve spies that were sent by Moses into the land of Canaan, or to the twelve stones in Aaron's breastplate, or to the twelve fountains the Israelites found in the wilderness, or to the twelve oxen on which the molten sea stood in Solomon's temple, or to the twelve gates in Ezekiel's temple, or rather to the twelve patriarchs and the tribes which sprung from them. That is, they were the fathers of the Jewish nation, which was typical of God's chosen people. So these, these apostles, were to be the the instruments of spreading the gospel, not only Judea, not only to Judea, but in all the world, and of planting Christian churches there. So Jesus deliberately chose 12 to match the 12 tribes of Israel. And of course, I love Revelation 21:14, and the wall of the city. That's the New Jerusalem, which symbolizes the new covenant, the church on from present age all the way to the end of the world and on into the future. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And of course, above those foundation stones, you had gates. And on the gates, above the gates, were the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So all of that was fitting into God's divine plan here. That's why they're called the twelve. Moving on to chapter, Mark chapter 6, verse 8. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a walking stick, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts. The reason for this was is that jesus wanted them to travel light and live off the land why well all care and all that stuff would be burdensome to travel around it's easier to get support on the road they weren't going to be gone long and john gill adds an interesting possible reason is that it would teach them to live on divine providence now the parallel passage in matthew 10 verses 9 through 10 says don't take a long gold silver or copper copy for your money belts don't even take any money don't take a traveling bag. That bag, I always picture a suitcase kind of thing, but according to Adam Clark, it was a bag around the, the neck that they put food in. Don't take an extra shirt, sandals, or a walking stick for the worker is worthy of his food. Now, the problem here is, is that Matthew says don't take an extra shirt, comma, sandals, comma, or a walking stick. So if you read that as don't take an, a walking stick, you have a conflict with Mark which says... Don't take anything except a walking stick. In other words, you can take a walking stick but no food, no money. Matthew says, don't take an extra shirt, comma, don't take sandals, comma, don't take a walking stick. The easiest way to reconcile that is to distribute the adjective extra over shirt, sandals, and walking stick. Don't take an extra shirt, don't take extra sandals, and don't take an extra walking stick. That makes sense. He wouldn't tell them don't take any sandals. they got to have sandals to walk. So the extra would go with sandals, don't take extra sandals, and you c- and likewise, it, would sh- it should go with extra walking stick. Why would they take two walking sticks? Well, the second stick would be used for defense to beat people on the head in case there were robbers tried to rob them. There's other ways to possibly reconcile that, too, which I don't think are as good. You could just say the translation is different in Mark that the Greek word means walking stick, where in Matthew it means a stick for defense. It's understood. The word is loose enough in its definition so that Mark could have meant Jesus could have said in Mark, Don't take anything except a walking stick. And Matthew is saying, Don't take a defense stick. But you can take a walking stick. That's one way you can reconcile it. Also, there's some textual variants that say that sticks should be plural. Don't take walking sticks, which means that it's okay to take one walking stick. Don't take two, but one's okay. The easiest way to do is just say, don't take an extra walking stick. The idea is travel light. The worker is worthy of his food. In the New Testament, we know from the apostles who went out spreading the gospel in the book of Acts, for example, they never took money. They never took money from people they were ministering to. They never asked for money, but they did ask for and receive hospitality. Nothing wrong with that. I remember Grosheide, the great the famous commentator in the new international commentary series made the point that seeking for, asking for hospitality is not the same thing as asking for money. It's a different thing. So all this stuff about you being worthy of support, which is under, under conditions. You don't ask for it with the people you're ministering to if you're going to follow the apostolic pattern, And you, but it's okay to ask for hospitality when you need to go somewhere, and you can i've done a whole video on this actually on YouTube. You can find places in the New Testament where Paul did all that, and it's it's re- relatively easy to establish. but the general idea is is that the laborer is worthy of his support that 's not salaries these people didn't go out and take salaries. they took hospitality he's worthy of his food for the worker's worthy of his food. That place in Timothy where it says the worker the elder is worthy of his wages that's metaphorical. he compares it to a oxen not muzzling an oxen who's eating grain off the ground. You don't pay oxen wages. When he says, you don't muzzle the ox for the labor is worthy of his wages, you don't say the oxen is trying to get wages and neither is the minister of the gospel taking wages as a salary. He's not a hired hand, but he can take gifts, should take gifts if he if he deserves them. And likewise, hospitality. Moving on to... Mark verse, chapter 6 verse 9, they were to wear sandals but not to put on an extra shirt that fits with Matthew 10 where it says don't take extra shirt and also probably extra sandals. We go to Mark chapter 6 verses 10 through 11. Then he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. If any place does not welcome you and people refuse to listen to you when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Why should they stay in one house and not move around? Here are some possible reasons. First of all, it would look like they were difficult to please and ungrateful if they left the first host and went to a second host. They might bring reproach upon the first host by leaving. It would look like they were had left because they were ill-used. And not to mention the fact that it would waste time, valuable time going from house to house looking for accommodations that were perfect. Matthew 10, verse 11, the parallel passage, also says that when you when the... Apostles were to find a house to give them hospitality. They should find one who is worthy. What does worthy mean? A God-fearing person? Well, maybe, but maybe not, because maybe they were trying to convert people who didn't love God. Was it people worthy of receiving Christ? Well, how do they know that before they get to the house, whether this person person is worthy of receiving Christ? It probably means people who are worthy because they're hospitable. They're liberal with their money and their food. And so that's the type of person you want to go try to stay with. If the disciples, if it was find out somebody who's worthy because they have good character, it could be that also because it would hurt the apostles' reputation to stay at someone's of bad character. Now, what does Jesus mean when he tells the apostles to shake the dust off their feet if they don't listen to you? Well, this is a common metaphor, a, a Jewish metaphor. I'll give you what is, it most probably means. It most probably means a symbolic act of rejection. This was practiced by the Pharisees. If the Pharisees went to an unclean Gentile area, they were walking on Gentile dirt. That Gentile dirt would be on their sandals. They'd come back into Israel. They'd defile Israel with the dust of the heathen country, and they themselves would be defiled. So in order not to do that, they would shake the dust off. For example, if a Pharisee went to Syrophoenicia, he goes to Syrophoenicia. He's getting ready to come back into Israel. He would shake the dust off his feet to show that he was not defiled by those, that, those dirty dogs in Syrophoenicia. And here, Jesus just uses it as an act of solemn warning. You reject God's message, you're just like a heathen Gentile to a Pharisee. You've rejected God, so you apostles shake the dust off your feet. And this shows that you can't witness to everybody. Some people just aren't going to listen. You don't cast your pearls before swine. This is tough when it's somebody you care about, and they just don't listen. They're not in the elect yet. Well, they're either in the elect or they're not in the elect, but you don't know whether they're in the elect yet, and they're not listening to you. Leave no use making an enemy out of them John Gill has an interesting take on this he says the shaking off the dust means I'm not even going to carry away the dust in your house I'm not interested in your money I'm not interested in your hospitality your food not even your dust I'm leaving it because you're not rejecting the, because you're rejecting the gospel that's to show that the apostles were not interested in money I think Gill is so creative but I don't think he's right. We now move to verses 12 and 13 of Mark 6, and we'll finish it up after these two verses. So they went out and preached that people should repent. That's the apostles. And they were driving out many demons, anointing many sick people with olive oil, and healing them. Preaching that people should repent, that's a good example for us. We should, When we witness to people, we should ask them to repent, as well as believe. The New Testament has many places where people that are being witnessed to, evangelized or supposed to believe, not a problem. If you believe in your heart confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart. But there are other places that say that, that they repented and believed. And here Jesus is saying you should repent. So I, I take repentance and belief as all part of the same package, just two different ways of looking at it. You turn your back on the world means you're believing in Jesus instead of the world. They were driving out many demons and they were anointing many sick people with olive oil. Notice the connection between exorcism and healing. That does not mean that everybody that's possessed of a demon is sick, and it doesn't mean that every person who's sick is got, has got a demon. However, if you look at the two circles like in Venn diagrams, there is some overlap because exorcism is often connected with healing. Why olive oil? Why anoint them with olive oil? Anointing, of course, was done uh, for, uh, to establish prophets and kings and such, but it was also used for healing. We often think of oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, which it is, but it's also a symbol of healing because the people would would anoint their wounds with healing. For example, the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, verse 34, the Good Samaritan went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, the oil and the wine, olive oil and wine. So oil is a perfect symbol for healing. The physical is often a sacramental sign of the, of the spiritual. And so that's why you anoint people with oil. It's interesting that Anointing with oil is only spoken of here and in the book of James, only twice in the New Testament. James chapter 5, verse 14 is anyone, anyone among you sick, he should call for the elders of the church, and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The anointing is a symbolic thing, it is not magical, it is not necessary. Many times Jesus healed people, he didn't anoint them with oil. It was just, this is just sort of an incidental detail. Anoint them with oil, it's a symbol we're going to pray to heal you. And I finished this section up by pointing out that, or suggesting to you that there's nothing wrong with ordinary Christians. I've already said this, but I'll say it again, ordinary Christians going out and praying for people to get well. How much faster the church might grow if Christians would do this instead of trying to pray for diamonds to fall out of the sky and for oil to ooze out of Bibles and all this charismatic nonsense, if they would just Cast out demons and pray for people to heal. Do miracle, uh, biblical miracles. And on the other hand, do miracles, period, instead of saying they all died out in the first century. We seem to be afflicted with a malady in the American church. You've got two extremes. The cessationist on one hand and charismatic goofballs on the other extreme. Follow the Bible. You can't go wrong, folks. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back from Mark 6, verses 6 through 13. And now I'm gonna splice in my discussion of Mark six, fourteen through twenty-nine, which is talking about Herod Antipas' guilty fears because of what he did to John the Baptist by cutting his head off. That splice starts now. I'm in Mark chapter six, starting with verse fourteen. We will run it on down through this long chapter to the end of the story of John the Baptist murder by King Herod Antipas. Starting in Mark six fourteen, and by the way, there's only there's Two parallels, but the parallel passage in Luke chapter nine is just a couple of verses. Doesn't add anything, so we're mainly going to look at Matthew chapter 14, starting with verse one. So Mark 6:14 says this: King Herod heard of this. Heard of what? All the exorcisms and healings that were going on up in Galilee. Remember, this is Herod Antipas. He is in charge of the region of Galilee. His headquarters, apparently, according to Robertson, who I uh, thank God, it from Josephus. His headquarters was at Tiberias, that Roman town on the south western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So he heard all the commotions in Galilee, all the miracles happening. Because Jesus' name had become well known, Mark says. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why supernatural powers are at work in him. Who is this man Jesus going around causing such a commotion? That was the question of the day. Matthew 14.1 says, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus now, Mark calls him King Herod. That was his popular name. Actually, he was not technically a king. He was a tetrarch, which was a lower Roman official in charge of four, one of four territories. His brother, Herod Philip II, was actually a king of the province of Iteria, which was to the east of Galilee, on the, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, present-day Syria, southern Syria, northern Jordan, up in that region. He was a king, and later on we'll see that this caused Herod to lose the, the jealousy over the fact that his brother, King Herod Philip II, was a king and he was just a tetrarch actually cost him his job. He got booted by the Romans because of jealousy over that. We'll talk about that later. He heard the report about Jesus. Now, as I said, Herod was in charge of Galilee, which is north of Samaria, south of Phoenicia, present day Phoenicia, Cyrophoenicia, it was called back then, and Philip. Uh, had the area to the east of the Jordan River. Caesarea Philippi was up in the northern part of his area, down east to the Sea of Galilee and halfway down the Jordan River, or partway down the Jordan River on the way to the Dead Sea. And then right south of Pella on the east of the Jordan River, Perea started, and Perea goes down to the east of the Jordan River all the way down to the Dead Sea, halfway down to the, the tip of the Dead Sea, and that was Perea. And that was also ruled by Herod Antipas. These were the guys that took over his complicated political history after Herod the Great died. So anyway, Herod, King Herod was a big shot, and he was in charge of a big area. And all of a sudden he hears about his miracles, and he wants to know what's going on. And remember, this is Herod Antipas, not Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. got to remember that. Herod the Great was died in 4 BC right at the same time right about the time that Jesus was born this is at the time of John the Baptist and Jesus' beginning of his ministry in about 30 AD or so or well actually about 26 AD or so the time is about the time of the mission of the twelve according to Jameson Fawcett and Brown we talked about that in a previous chapter now John the Baptist had probably been in prison for about a year at this time before uh, Herod put him to to death as we're going to see in a minute but enough time had gone by John was in prison for Jesus to have his ministry well established and for him to become well known. Mark says he was well known in Mark 6 verse 14. We go to verse 15 of Mark chapter 6. Others said he's Elijah. Remember some in verse 14 said it's John the Baptist come back to life, working miracles. John six fifteen says others says he is Elijah. Still others says he is a prophet like one of the prophets. Luke has this detail like one of the old prophets, another prophet besides Elijah. So nobody knows who he is. Why would they thank Elijah? Well, because Malachi 4, 5 says this. Look, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That would be the day, time, the day of the Lord and to the Old Testament Jew would be the times of the Messiah. And Elijah was supposed to show up before the Messiah came. And I'm the Messiah. It could be that, some, and some say this, that Herod's courtiers are telling Herod it was Elijah that was going around doing all these miracles. So that... Je- Herod would not think it was John the Baptist raised from the dead, because Herod had killed John the Baptist, and that would give him a guilty conscience because he had killed John. We're, we're looking now at the time after the beheading of John the Baptist. We're going to go back and pick up the story of how it happened in just a little bit. Now, in Mark 6:15, the Home Christian study Bible says still others say he's a prophet. John Gill says that could be translated as "the prophet," which would mean that the people were referring to Deuteronomy 18, I think it's verse 15 where Moses predicts a prophet like him is coming after him. That, of course, is the prophet, and that prophet, of course, was Jesus. Or it could have just been some other prophet like Jeremiah. Anyway, they were all speculating who this was. Now, those who were speculating that it was John the Baptist included Herod Antipas, because in Mark 6, verse 16, which we're just getting ready to read, Herod says this, When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. This shows Herod's superstitious fear and guilty conscience. He probably thought John the Baptist was going to come back to haunt him because he had cut his head off. And he probably felt guilty because he knew, he had to have known that John the Baptist was perfectly innocent of any crime. Now some people think that Herod Antipas was a Sadducee. Now if Herod Antipas was a Sadducee, that would really be something that he would think that John the Baptist had been resurrected from the dead because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. How do you get the idea that Herod Antipas might be a Sadducee? Well, if you compare two verses, Matthew sixteen six and Mark eight fifteen, and make a substitution, you'll see this. Matthew sixteen six says this. Then Jesus told them, Watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Mark eight fifteen says this. Then he commanded them, Watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. So you see that Sadducees and Yeast of Herod are in perfect parallel there. So it sounds like the use of Sadducees is the same. The use of Herod is the same thing as saying the yeast of the Sadducees, and so therefore Herod is a Sadducee. That's just speculation. But if it's true, it would be quite interesting to think that a man who doesn't believe in the resurrection of the dead is so shaken up by his murder of John the Baptist that he thinks somebody's actually resurrected and come back to haunt him, except not haunt him as a ghost, but haunt him as a resurrected human being. Now, this idea that some that the, that John the Baptist excuse me, that Jesus might be John the Baptist's resurrection from the dead, shows the belief in resurrection that the Jews had. This was a common belief they had, the resurrection of the physical body. Now talking about Herod's guilt, John Gill says this, The murdered prophet haunted his guilty breast like a specter and seemed to him alive again and clothed with unearthly powers in the person of Jesus. And it's ironic, people are saying this is John the Baptist doing miracles because John the Baptist didn't do one miracle while he was doing his ministry. All he did was preach. Now, why might Herod Antipas have a guilty conscience for killing John? Well, because John was chastising his immorality, rightly chastising his Im- immorality, and that's why John the ba- Herod Antipas killed him. There might have been a secondary reason why John the Baptist had killed why Herod did kill John the Baptist. He may have feared the reaction of the Jews to his incestuous marriage. He might have feared a revolt stirred up by John the Baptist. John the Baptist kept saying, "You shouldn't have married your brother's wife, Herodias," but you did, and it's incestuous. And if all the Jews heard that, these Jews who are very sensitive about violating the law, they might start thinking, well, our great leader up here, Herod Antipas, is an incestuous person. And maybe we ought to revolt against him. Now, how do we know that Herodias and Herod Antipas' relationship was incestuous? Well, we can look at Leviticus 18, verse 16, and read this. You are not to have sexual intercourse with your brother's wife. It will shame your brother. Well... Herod Antipas was having sexual intercourse with his brother's wife Herodias. His brother was Herod Philip I, and his wife was Herodias. This was a direct violation of the law. But now the next question is, well, so what? Herod Antipas was not under Jewish law, was he? He was a Roman official, so why did John the Baptist blame him for that? Well, we don't know that he blamed him for incest, for being within the laws, the bounds of consanguinity. We don't know that. He might have just blamed him for adultery, because he could have just blamed him for adultery because he stole somebody else's wife. And it could be that he was just, it was just a detail that it was his brother's wife, but he'd taken somebody else's wife, he would have been guilty of adultery. The fact that it was his brother's wife was just a detail. Or it could be that Herod Antipas was Jewish because, after all, his father had converted to Judaism and he was the son of his father, even though he was in bed with the Romans, he was still a Jew. And so he should have been under Jewish law. And even if he wasn't under Jewish law, I can imagine a Jew would think highly of him, uh, not think highly of him because he was breaking Leviticus here, even if he were considered not to be under the Jewish law. Herodias might have suggested that to Herod, said, You know, the, this John the Baptist is out here preaching against our marriage. That might cause a popular tumult, it might cause an uproar, it might cause a revolt. And you know what that means for a political leader. So maybe you better arrest John and get him out of the way. It could have been why Herod had arrested John. Well, let's move on. Mark chapter 6, verse 16. When Herod heard of it, that is, heard of all the, the commotion going on in Galilee because of Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the Twelve. When, G, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. Now notice this fear, that this superstitious fear, that John the Baptist come back in order to haunt him was not first proposed by Herod. Others had first given out that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. In our parallel passage in Luke 9, 7, we read, Herod the Tetrarch heard about everything that was going on. He was perplexed because some said that John had been raised from the dead. So some people were saying it might have given Herod the idea. Going to Mark 6, verse 17 through 22 For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Now, this story of Herodias involves a lot of names, and the names are so confusing that I finally had to get a chart of Herod the Great's descendants and memorize it so I could even tell you this story. You might not be able to keep them straight just listening to an audio. You might have to dig out a chart of Herod the Great's descendants to figure it out yourself, but I'm going to do the best I can. Remember, this is Herod Antipas. He is a son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had 10 wives, so most of the descendants, the, the sons of Herod the Great, were half-brothers because they were sons by different wives. So Herod Antipas had given orders to arrest John and put him in prison. The prison is Macarius, which is 16 miles southeast of where the Jordan River runs into the Dead Sea, down south, south and east of Jerusalem, it's a mound that's still there today. If you're interested in archaeology, you can or look at a picture of it on Wikipedia. Still there. That's where John was killed, and that's where he was chained. Now, why did Herod arrest John? Because of his brother Philip's wife. Well, who was the brother Philip? Well, to make this story interesting, Herod had two brother Philips, and both of them were called Herod Philip. The first one was called Herod Philip the first, and the other one was called Herod Philip the second. So we have to distinguish them because obviously. They didn't distinguish, his mom and daddy didn't distinguish them by names. I don't know why they would do stuff like this, but they did. So Herod Philip I was married to a woman named Herodias. Now Herodias and Herod Philip I had a daughter named Salome. Now Herod got the hots for Herodias, Herod Philip I's wife. So he convinced he persuaded Herodias to leave Herod Philip I. I think they were in Rome when this happened. He, they were all of them in Rome. But at any rate, he asked Herodias to divorce Herod Philip the I and marry him. Now, unfortunately, Herod Antibus was already married to the daughter of the the daughter of Aretas, who was an Arabian king of the south, Nabataean king, I think it was. And Aretas had a daughter that he had given to an alliance to show that they were in a friendly alliance. He had given his daughter to Herod Antipas to marry. So Herod Antipas had to put away the daughter of King Aretas of Nabatea in the south. Had to put her away. And then Herod Philip I had to lose his wife Herodias so that Herodias could marry Herod Philip I. So this was a big time sin. There's no wonder John the Baptist was upset about it. John the Baptist wasn't the only one upset about it. King Aretas, when he found out that his daughter had been put away by Herod, attacked him beat the mud out of mud out of Herod Antipas in a military battle, so Herod Antipas got what was coming to him. Now, to make this story even a little more complicated, Herod Antipas's new wife, now Herodias, she used to be married to Herod Philip I, his half-brother. Well, Herod the Philip I and Herodias, when Herodias was still married to Herod Philip I, they had a daughter named Salome. She's going to show up in this story. Salome was a young woman of marriageable age, and in fact, She ended up later marrying Herod Philip II, the other Herod Philip brother of Herod Antipas. Now this Herod Philip II is also called Philip the Tetrarch. His place was called the Tetrarch of Philip. He actually became a king, I think, at some point. He was east of the Sea of Galilee in that area. Caesarea Philippi was up there and went down. Just basically remember the eastern part of the Tetrarch of Philip covered the eastern part of the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, he married Salome. So Herod the Philip II married Salome, who was the daughter of Helen Philip I, and Herodias, who ended up divorcing Herod the Philip I and married Herod Antipas. So it was a nice family affair. Sounds like something to go on in one of Jeff Foxworthy's stories. So there's your story. And of course, Salome is the sexy girl who, who sexy danced ended up getting John the Baptist killed. So there's, there's your characters. Now, let's see if we can get the story straight. Matthew fourteen four says, well, let's go back to Mark 6, verse 18. John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Well, it certainly wasn't lawful. They both, both Herodias and Herod Antipas were legally married to other women, uh, to other spouses, and they had no grounds for divorce, and they divorced and married each other. Verse 19 and Mark 6, So Herodias held a grudge against him, against John the Baptist, and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod was in awe of John and was protecting him, knowing he was a righteous and holy man. It was hard for Herod Antipas, although he was an evil man, it was hard for him to kill a holy man. It just for superstitious fear, if nothing else. Not to mention the fact that a lot of people in Galilee thought that John the Baptist was a holy man and to kill a holy man would get a bunch of people mad at him. It might cause political turmoil, which is something, of course, that... Roman underlings feared. They didn't want the emperor to say, what's going on over there in my corner of the empire? So she, Herod had a lot of reason not to kill John. That's why he was protecting him. Verse 20 still in Mark 6, when Herod heard him, heard John the Baptist, he would be very disturbed. Well, obviously, because he was saying, you, sir, are a sinner. And it wasn't just because of the adultery that John the Baptist was chastising Herod for. We read in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 3, verse 19, that John the Baptist was criticizing Herod for other things too. But Herod the Tetrarch being rebuked by him about Herodias, his brother's wife, and about all the evil things Herod had done. So Herod was an evil ruler, and John the Baptist kept pointing out to him, you, sir, are a scumbag. But, John, but, John, but Herod would still listen to him, would hear him gladly, as a matter of fact, Mark says in verse 20, chapter 6, gladly hear him. Why? Because I'm sure he was fascinated by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a very unusual character. He preached total righteousness in an atmosphere of total sin, corruption, and putrefaction, moral evil. So Herod's listening to this guy who's condemning him. It's a very interesting psychological situation. Verse 21, Now an opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. This party was probably in Tiberius. When Herodias' own daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. That daughter was Herodias' daughter by Herod Philip I, her former husband, Herod Antipas' half-brother, and Salome, the girl who later ended up marrying Philip the Tetrarch, Herod Philip II, the other Herod Philip brother of Herod Antipas, she ended up marrying him later, but at this time I guess she's still single, and she comes in there and she does a sexy dance. Now, it says the girl pleased him. Well, people debate on why the girl pleased the king and the guest. Was it because she had a nice smile and was cheerful, or because she danced so well, or is it because she was lascivious? Well, the NIV study Bible says it's unquestionably because she was lascivious, and I think it's unquestionably true, that that's why she did it. bunch of testosterone-laden government officials and military officials watching some girl doing a belly dance, I guess is what she was doing. So, you know, that's what happens to men. As soon as they see a, a woman's form unclothed a little bit, there's a big switch on top of the head. It goes on, off, and it goes, click, off, quits working. And that's what happened to Herod Antipas here. His brain quit working. He said, I'll ask ask you want what you want, and I'll give it to you, Mark says. In the parallel passage in Matthew, it says, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Or excuse me, in the verse next verse in Mark six twenty three, he said, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, that's a proverbial reference to generosity. It's not meant to be taken literally. I mean, she couldn't have gone and said, uh, Herod, uh, Anabas, I think I'll take Perea, you keep Galilee. Or, I'll take Galilee, you take Perea. No, that's not what he meant. It's a, it's a proverb. It means, I can give you a whole bunch, you ask for it. I mentioned some of the reasons why the guest might have been pleased by Salome, because she was bright and cheerful, because she was sensuous and lascivious. vicious. Another option might be, is because Herod might have been pleased, because... It was his birthday and she was showing him honor on his birthday. In other words, it might have been innocent. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Notice that Matthew says she, Salome pleased Herod and Mark says she pleased Herod and his guest. Well, the guest weren't having the birthday party. They were pleased because she was doing a sexy dance. I'm absolutely convinced of it. By the way, Salome is not mentioned in the text as the name of a girl. We, ne- we get her name from Josephus. Now, to give you a feel of what a big birthday party this was and why King Herod could not back down from his promise to give her up to half the kingdom and Salome's request to have John the Baptist's head brought to her on a platter. The reason he couldn't back down from this is because this was his birthday party and King's birthdays were big deals among the Gentiles according to John Gill. Not so much among the Jews, but among the Gentiles. This may have even been his day of ascension as King or Tetrarch of Galilee as Gill and Clark point out, because you call those they call those names by the same Greek word, translated as birthday, so he had all those guests, and this, and he says, "Ooh, Salome, Salome, I'll give you whatever you want." Mark 6:23 through 29. So he swore oaths to her. Notice not just one, but plural oaths to her, to Salome. This is he, Herod Annabas, swore oaths to Salome. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Then she went out and said to her mother, and she went out because Herodias, her mother, was not there sitting with all the men at the banquet table. That wasn't the custom. So she goes outside of the banquet hall and said, what should I ask for? She's probably pretty excited about this. John the Baptist head, she, her mother Herodias, said. Immediately she heard to the king and said, I want you to give me. Immediately she, Salome, went back into the banquet, heard to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist head on a platter right now. Though the king was deeply distressed because of his oaths and the guest, he did not want to refuse her. He couldn't. He was between a rock and the hard place. He didn't want to kill John because it might cause a tumult and because he might feel guilty about killing an innocent holy man. But on the other hand, he was the king and made all those solemn oaths before the officials of his kingdom. Verse 27. The king immediately sent for an executioner. That's a Roman word there, so it's a Roman one of his Roman soldiers sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison. Again, that's the, the prison of Macarius, probably, which was, say, right southeast of the where the Jordan River ran into the Dead Sea, out in the desert, the Jordan Desert there. So John the Baptist is in prison. He's killed. Probably the execution was done in private, not in public, because, again, less of an uproar if you do it in prison, do it in private. And so the executioner brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. By the way, it's not a silver platter. I don't know why. Whenever I think of this story, I always picture a silver platter. I think you hear the, giving me his head on a silver platter. It's actually on a wooden platter, the kind of platter you eat on. Gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother, Herodias, the girl of Salome. When his disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse and placed it in a tomb. The disciples probably got permission from Herod to go get the body, and Herod was probably in no mood to cross the disciples anymore he'd already just killed one of their prophets and he was probably going to be as nice as he could about it so the disciples got the corpse of john the baptist and placed it in a tomb now you notice she said give me a head on a platter right now why right now she probably didn't want him to change his mind he's in his cups right now he's drinking she didn't want herod's mood to change he's drinking he's just saw the sexy dance testosterone probably hadn't receded from his besotted brain and so she's saying give it to him now Mark says immediately she heard to the king, give 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 me his head right now. Now Salome, we should point out, it was just as lascivious, revengeful, and cruel as her mother. Note how coolly both Herodias, the mother, and Salome, the daughter, discuss cold-blooded murder, because that's what this was—cold-blooded murder of John the Baptist. Well, is there any justice in the universe? This is according to the ancient historian Nicephorus, this is what happened to Salome. She was walking on a river frozen in the winter. The ice broke. She falls in the river and a piece of ice cut off her head. Well, justice has been served. Now, Mark says that Herod was deeply distressed because of Salome's request for John the Baptist's head and Matthew says the king regretted that request. Here's some options as to why he might have regretted Having to execute John the Baptist first, Herod had a certain respect for John. Now, in Matthew fourteen five, it said Herod wanted to kill John, but in Mark six twenty, it says Herod was in awe of John and was protecting him because he was a righteous and holy man. So he had a certain respect for John because of his holiness. Even non-believers sometimes—it's just like Benjamin Franklin, who was a—he was a reprobate. He didn't believe in Jesus, but he loved George Whitfield. They were good friends. There's lots of examples like that. So. This some people say there's a contradiction here between six twenty when he said he would be very likely love to hear him, but in Mark Matthew fourteen five he says he wanted to kill him. The, uh the the NIV study bible note says that this shows contrary conflicting passions in a man of lust. Well, people are complicated psycholo- psychologically. I can see why somebody would want to hear somebody tell them they're a sinner, but not having the guts to get out of the sin. I mean, after all, that would take a lot to get rid of Herodias again after you just busted up two marriages to together. Well, anyway, that's the first reason why he regretted having to kill Herod. Anabas regretted having to kill John the Baptist because he had a certain respect for John. The second reason is Herod would be worried that he would incur the wrath of the crowd who thought John was a prophet. That's John Gill's idea. Third reason, his conscience was bothering him because he knew John the Baptist was an innocent man. That's John Gill's suggestion. Fourth reason. The Roman leaders had a superstition against executing people on a leader's birthday. That's an interesting point from John Gill. So Herod was going against Roman, the Roman leader's superstition by executing John the Baptist. Fifth possible reason from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Herod, the great, Herod Antipas excuse me, was galled to find himself entrapped by his own folly, getting suckered by a seductive dance. So he made oaths. He didn't want to violate his oaths, so he would be guilty of perjury, so instead he committed murder. As John Gill points out, it's a little bit silly. You're going to be so solicitous of your oaths, but then you're going to commit murder to keep those oaths. Some people have made an interesting suggestion that Herod actually colluded with Herodias from the beginning to get John the Baptist's head. In other words, John uh, Herod Antipas goes to Herodias and says we've got to get rid of John the Baptist how can we do it? Herodias says I'll tell you what I'll send my daughter out there with a, doing a sexy dance and then you promise to give her everything and then she'll come to me and ask what's the promise going to be and I'm going to say give me the head of John the Baptist and that way it'll look like it's Salome's fault and not your fault at least it'll take some of the program off of your head for killing John the Baptist well that's an interesting idea John Gill, of course, is the most creative commentator you'll ever find. Don't know if that's true or not, I doubt it. I think you're got suckered. Getting drunk watched the watch the dance and one thing led to another without premeditating it. We go on to now to Mark chapter six verse thirty. Well actually we're gonna stop at Mark six verse thirty. But before we do, let me point out the fate of Herod, Antipas and Herodias. This is from Josephus, and I'm doing this from memory, but the way I remember it is Herod Philip II, the tetrarch to the east of the Sea of Galilee. He got a title of king, but Herod Antipas did not get the Roman title of king. He was a mere tetrarch. Herodias being ambitious. Herod Antipas was not that ambitious. He was perfectly content with that title. But his grasping, scheming wife, Herodias, said that's not right. She became jealous of Herod Philip II. And she says, my husband, Herod Antipas, ought to be a king, just like Herod Philip II is a king. Well, the politics involved in trying to get Herod Antipas a kingship irritated the emperor, and the emperor relieved Herod Antipas of his duties and exiled him. Herodias, being the loyal wife that she was, we got to hand that to her, she followed Herod Antipas to Lyon in southern France where he was banished, and there they died, according to Josephus. So Salome gets her head chopped off with a piece of ice. Herod, Antipas, and Herodias get banished, and they all lived unhappily ever after. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm back from my splice of Mark 6, verses 14 through 29, which describes the guilty fears of Herod, Antipas, and Tiberius about Jesus because he had beheaded the Baptist and Macarius. I think I failed to mention that, the, that Salome's sexy dance was in Tiberius, which was Herod Antipas's capital at his birthday party. Mercurius was down in the northeastern corner of the Dead Sea, right in the southern end of Perea, which Herod Antipas had jurisdiction over. So that means I'm finished now with Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. In the first part of the audio, we took up the, com- the sending out of the 12, two by two on the third Galilean tour. And we finished up with the story of Herod and the beheading of John the Baptist. I hope you enjoyed this video. We'll see you next time as we continue with Luke 9 starting in verse 10.